And we're going to open God's Word this evening to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 6. Romans, chapter 6. We're going to take the time to read the entire chapter, and then we're going to take a text from it. So beginning at verse 1, let us hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey? whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness." I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity 
unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It is the word of the living God, and may the Lord add his blessing and his approval to the public reading of his precious word for his name's sake. Now let's take a moment to bow together in prayer. Gracious Father and eternal God, we thank thee again this night for thy holy word. We thank thee that thou hast called us together, not only to sing thy praises, to proclaim thy glory, but to hear thy word. And we pray for the grace that we need tonight to hear that word aright. We pray that thou would be pleased to pour out thy spirit in our gathering. We ask, O Lord, that thou would give us minds ready to hear and receive the engrafted word of truth. O Lord, come and fill me with thy spirit's power to the very uttermost. We ask that thou would be merciful unto us tonight, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take as our text the 17th verse of Romans chapter 6. And let me just preface the reading of the text by saying that tonight we're going to look at the doctrine of the Reformation that John Calvin formalized in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. I'll have more to say about that in a little while. But because it is October and we sometimes give attention to Reformation themes, I thought it would be appropriate for us this evening. And with that in mind, to hear the words of the text, Romans 6 and verse 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. It's not just speaking about the doctrine then, but the form of doctrine, the way in which that doctrine is expressed. And that's what we want to consider together this evening. In the mid-1530s, the Protestant Reformation struggled to establish itself as an enduring movement. It was a transition point in many ways. The Swiss reformer, Uldrich Zwingli, died, and it will be on Wednesday of this week, is the anniversary of his death, in 1531, at the Second Battle of Kappel in Switzerland. 
The Lutheran Reformation in Germany secured official recognition at the Diet of Augsburg in 1530, at which the Holy Roman Emperor, for political and military reasons, allowed Protestants the freedom in his domain to publish their confession and to worship as they thought best according to the dictates of their consciences. In England, the progress of the Reformation suffered from the resolve of King Henry VIII to resist Lutheran ideas in his kingdom. But King Henry's desire for a male heir to the throne led him down the road to separation from Rome. By the mid-1530s, the focus of the Reformation shifted to France and the French cantons of Switzerland. Switzerland is an interesting country even to this day in that there are three main divisions of the country. There are people who speak Italian, and they are in that part of Switzerland near the Italian border. There are people who speak German, and there are people in Switzerland who speak French. So they speak about the cantons, those are political subdivisions. The French cantons of Switzerland were the scene of the Reformation labors. In France, the policy of King Francis I was to oppress the Protestants, except for those occasions when he required their support in his political ambitions. Francis came to the throne in 1515, when John Calvin was six years old. Francis continued to rule as King of France until 1547, the year in which Edward VI, at the age of nine, succeeded Henry VIII as King of England and opened the door for the Reformation to advance in England. In the 1530s, John Calvin was in his 20s and had a reputation among the Roman priests, and he had been trained as a priest, but he had a reputation among them as a renegade, a traitor, and an apostate. But his undeniable gifts made him a formidable spokesman for the truth of the gospel that the Reformation espoused. It was at that time that Calvin determined to undertake what he described was a minor writing project. He set out to organize on paper statements about the various points of doctrine that he saw in the scriptures. That he regarded his work as minor, and even, as he said, trivial, appeared in the title that he gave to his work. He called it Institutes of the Christian Religion. He looked upon it as a, a primer, if you will, for aspiring theological students to prepare them for further study in the Bible. He was 26 when the work appeared in print for the first time. 
We have some people here in the congregation this evening who are in that general age range, and you may find it daunting to think about what he did at the age of 26. He included with the work a lengthy epistle of dedication written to King Francis. And he never thought anything would come of that work. So the response to the work surprised everybody, not the least of whom was Calvin. Subsequent generations came to attack Calvin's views in the Institutes as reflecting very stern views of God. But Calvin had more to say in the Institutes than that which concerned the subject of predestination. After all, as he argued, he was echoing the views of Augustine from the 4th and 5th centuries and expounded those views further. To deal with the subject of the theology of John Calvin in a single message is an impossible task, and I'm not going to attempt it. I listened recently to an audio recording of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and to listen to the whole thing takes about 80 hours. So if you were to listen nonstop, you would need four days, morning and afternoon and night, to to, uh, complete the whole work. Calvin was undoubtedly the leading theologian of the Protestant Reformation. His warm-hearted devotion to Christ combined with his keen ability in analysis and argument to produce a powerful statement of the doctrine of the apostles. And this was the point he was making in writing the Institutes These were the doctrines that were set down in the scriptures. The reformers were intent on the mission to recover what the apostles taught. So the reformers set out to restore the doctrine of which we read in our text to its prominence in the church. Now, Calvin does not lack for opponents. And there have been some who suggested that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. But his theological writing left the heirs of his legacy a firm foundation for consolidating the spiritual gains that Calvin gave his whole life to advance. So this evening we want to consider this form of sound doctrine of which we read in our text and consider Calvin's Reformation doctrine. Those who accuse John Calvin, and there are many, of creating a theological system out of his imagination display how poorly they understood what the Reformer tried to achieve. He wanted to get the people of God back to the Bible, back to that form of doctrine of which we read in our text. 
He said that if he departed from the ground of Holy Scripture, he would be certain to, to err. But it was not his intention to depart from that ground. He longed to dwell upon that which the apostles proclaimed, and the record of what the apostles proclaimed is in the New Testament. Now when we offer an overview, and that's all we can do this evening, of Calvin's Reformation doctrine, especially as it appears in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, there are five ideas that he focused on that we need to consider. And we have to be brief. Let us begin with the thing with which he began. The absolute sovereignty of God. The form of doctrine of which the Apostle wrote to the Romans in our text began with that absolute sovereignty of God. For Calvin, this was the bedrock. He couldn't really proceed at all in theology without this foundation. Luther began on the ground of anthropology. He, he focused on people. But Calvin began with God. And I think it's well for us to take that to heart. And that contrast is the fundamental difference, even to this day, between Calvinistic thought and Lutheran thought. Calvin wrote in the Institutes, let each of us, therefore, in contemplating his own nature, remember that there is one God who governs all natures and in governing wishes us to have respect to himself, to make him the object of our faith, worship, and adoration. Nothing indeed can be more preposterous, he said, than to enjoy those noble endowments which bespeak the divine presence within us and to neglect him who of his own good pleasure bestows them upon us. Let us turn to the Psalms, to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. And verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. The Lord is good to all. So there is a sense in which even those who are outside of faith in Christ Know the goodness of God. The Lord is good to all. Calvin's doctrine of the absolute sovereignty of God then reflected the truth of the scriptures that God is supreme and that there is only one God, that his existence is distinct from the existence of his creation. So, that in terms of the universe, how vast it is, it's not infinite, because only God is infinite, but it is so vast that we can not comprehend it, 
God is distinct from that. The heaven of heavens, Solomon said, cannot contain God. That God is absolutely sovereign, Calvin argued, means he has the right to deal with his creation according to his own will, as he has expressed it in his eternal decree. One of the things you often hear about today is the concern about the warming of the planet. We had a very hot summer and now the, pro- the prophets of doom are out that it's too late now, we can't go back, and that uh, the world is going to become uninhabitable. Well, it will become uninhabitable at some point, that is for certain. But God has the right to deal with his creation. I just saw today uh, a comparison of two uh, of the same place 80 years apart. They talk about how the seas are rising, the sea levels are rising. And here, out in the midst of the sea, are these platforms that were built way back in the 1930s or early 40s. And you saw a picture of them with the water at a certain level on the legs that supported the platform. And then 80 years later, that is this year, Uh, Another picture showing that the water level was higher. It was higher than 80 years ago. Or no, it was lower than 80 years ago. So that God is demonstrating there his ability to deal with his creation as he wills. You remember our late brother Rich Woods who sometimes preached here in years gone by. And he had a way of putting it that I always thought was good. He said, we need to let God be God. Calvin argued that God alone decrees all events so that he knows not only what will happen, but what would happen if certain circumstances were to arise even though by his own decree those circumstances will never arise. In theology, that distinction is known as God's knowledge of things actual versus God's knowledge of things potential. And there are places in the scriptures where there is evidence of that very thing. Jesus talked about the people of Capernaum of his day, saying that if the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had known what the people of Capernaum knew, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. But obviously they did not know that. But that was his knowledge of things potential. The doctrine of election, when it comes to the salvation of souls, came from the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. So that is where Calvin began. Began with the supremacy of God. And against that truth, Calvin set the counterpoint. And that is the second thing to which we come, the total depravity of man. So the absolute sovereignty of God, the total depravity of man. 
And it was here that Calvin and Luther found themselves in the most agreement. Luther wrote a notable work which he called The Bondage of the Will because it was his intention to refute the statements of Erasmus that the will of man was free to do whatever he wanted. He wrote, Luther wrote concerning the bondage of the will, and Calvin described human nature as deranged by sin. Here is what Calvin wrote. I have said, therefore, that all the parts of the soul were possessed by sin. Ever since Adam revolted from the fountain of righteousness... For not only did the inferior appetites entice him, but abominable impiety seized upon the very citadel of the mind and pride penetrated to his inmost heart, so that it is foolish and unmeaning to confine the corruption thence proceeding to what are called sensual motions or to call it an excitement which allures, excites, and drags the single part which they call sensuality into sin. Then later he said, Hence it follows that that part in which the dignity and excellence of the soul are most conspicuous has not only been wounded, but so corrupted that mere cure is not sufficient. There must be a new nature. And so he turned in the epistle to the Romans to chapter 8. Let's turn over a page from our text to chapter 8 of Romans. And look at verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life. And peace. Because the carnal mind, we understand that the depraved mind, the sin cursed mind, is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God. And notice the last part of verse 7 neither indeed can be. So there is a statement that addresses ability. So then Paul went on to say, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But here is the great distinction. Because in verse 9 we read, ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So Calvin's point was this, here's a description of the total corruption of the soul. To insist upon the total depravity of man, and I I submit to you that here is where most evangelism today fails miserably. To insist upon the total depravity of man is not to say that people are incapable of that which is relatively noble. Because they are. We see evidence of it all the time. But the pride of the heart is such that even when people do such noble acts, they do them for their glory. 
because they imagine it will contribute to God thinking better of them. In Calvin's teaching on the total depravity of man, he expounded the voice of Scripture, which is really the voice of Christ, and demonstrated why, as we were singing earlier, the grace of God was essential to salvation. So that leads me to the third thing that he emphasized, the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. Now, in the Institutes, Calvin often cited passages from the Church Fathers, going all the way back to the era after the Apostles. But when he did so, he did not have the idea that he was using those citations to gain added authority for what he was saying. He used those citations to show how the fathers either submitted to the authority of Scripture or, in many cases, departed from it. Calvin held to the position that the Bible is the sole source of faith and practice. And that's a position to which we hold. The Bible is the sole source of faith and practice. I just read this afternoon a quotation from George Whitfield to much the same point, that if we depart from that, then we are at sea. Calvin said that only in the Scriptures do we find the true knowledge of God. So it appears then that we ought to be very familiar with the Scriptures. Calvin maintained the distinction between the general revelation of God that we have in creation. We can go outside, we can see the evidence of that general revelation, but he said that that is not enough for the salvation of a soul. We need for that the special revelation of God that we have in the written scriptures. The argument was that he made that everything needed for a soul's salvation is in the Scriptures alone. He didn't denigrate other books. Obviously, he wrote many books himself. But he argued that nothing could be added to the Scriptures as the voice of authority. Now, that element of his Reformation doctrine was key. Because the accusation always came that Calvin and the other reformers were inventing new doctrine. His point was, we cannot go away from the scriptures. And that was Luther's stand as well. When he said before the Diet at Worms, unless I can be convinced from the scriptures alone that I am in error, I will not recant anything. The sufficiency of the scriptures. And then the fourth thing that we consider this evening, the purity of the church. Calvin, in his ecclesiology, that is his doctrine of the church, distinguished between the church universal and the church militant. And here is how he distinguished them. 
The church universal is the church triumphant. It is the church in heaven. It is the church where the members are at rest. They are in the presence of Christ. The church militant, on the other hand, he defined as the church in this world that is now battling for the truth and against error. And if anyone knew about the intensity of these battles, it was Calvin and his fellow reformers. Calvin knew the gospel well, and he knew that the work of the Holy Spirit was essential to salvation. And that knowledge we must never forsake. He also knew that the result of the Holy Spirit's miracle of the new birth was to set people on the path to holiness, to purity. So that path aimed at purity in the positive sense that he would exhort believers to conform their lives to the person of Christ. But it was also to combat every idea that subverted the gospel. So for Calvin and the fellow, his fellow reformers, it was not just a matter of being positive. It was also a matter of identifying that which was against the truth, that which subverted the gospel, and working with all his might to persuade people against it. The church, Calvin taught, must always separate itself then from the false gospel and from those who compromised with the false gospel. And in his day there were just as many of those people as there are today. The purity of the church then. And then the last thing that I would emphasize this evening as we consider this form of doctrine is the glory of the atonement. The glory of the atonement. Now I like to remind you whenever I have the opportunity that John Calvin never heard in his life the phrase five-point Calvinism. He never heard it. He never thought of the tulip as anything other than a springtime flower. But what he focused on in his work was the centrality of what Christ did on the cross. We were remembering that again this morning as we focused on the cup of blessing, the communion of the blood of Christ. Calvin argued that Christ accomplished through the shedding of his blood the redemption of his people. He accomplished it. He wasn't making it possible for them to be saved. He was saving them. He said of Christ, and here again is another quotation from the Institutes, nor are we to understand that by the curse which he endured, he was himself overwhelmed, but rather that by enduring it, he repressed, broke, annihilated all its force. 
Accordingly, faith apprehends acquittal in the condemnation of Christ and blessing in his curse. Hence, it is not without cause that Paul magnificently celebrates the triumph which Christ obtained upon the cross, as if the cross, the symbol of ignominy, had been converted into a triumphal chariot. For he says that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, that having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Here was, in Calvin's mind, the very core of everything, what Christ did upon the cross. He didn't regard it as simply a side event that becomes the preface to more important things. He regarded it not only in his ministry as a gospel preacher, but also in the lives of the people to whom he preached, he regarded it as the key point. Because the atonement accomplished the deliverance of Christ's people. So when Paul wrote to the Romans, as we saw in chapter 6 and verse 17, about the form of doctrine, it was not just the doctrine itself, but the form of the doctrine that they obeyed. Here was the demonstration that what Christ did for them bore fruit in their lives. They obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to them. So what the Apostle Paul preached and those who were his colleagues preached, the people in Rome who did not meet Paul for a long time after uh, they got to know about him, but what they preached was the centrality of the cross. And it was the central aspect of the gospel that was the core of Calvin's Reformation doctrine. So there's no reason for anyone to be ashamed or to regret that Calvin focused upon this great truth because for him it was the core of everything. Without the atonement that Christ accomplished on the cross, there is no salvation. And again, he emphasized that it was not simply to make it possible for people to think about repenting, but to secure their salvation, to secure their repentance. And for that, we have to give God praise that he raised up John Calvin and gave him the gifts he needed to set down in clear and didactic form that doctrine of the Reformation that endures to this day. We are, we are really here this evening because of the work that he did. And I trust that the Lord will encourage you during this month of October 
that the Lord's work through the Reformation continues to bear fruit even tonight, even here in our gathering. Let us bow together in prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we give thee praise for all thy mercy to us today. Thank thee for the opportunity to consider this information this evening, and in particular to consider that form of doctrine that the apostle delivered through his associates to the people of Rome. And, O oh, Father, we praise Thee that there were people who obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. O oh, Lord, we praise Thee again this evening for Thy mercy to us. We ask, O oh, Lord, that Thou would be pleased to undertake for us to write the Word of God upon our hearts that we may rejoice again in all that Thou hast done for us. So we pray that Thou wilt Bless thy word to our hearts and grant that there will be fruit remaining in every life for the proclamation of thy word tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.